have a seat. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we are. Ephesians chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, um, if you need a Bible, there's one. should be on the edge of your row and maybe every couple of chairs. So if you need a Bible, feel free to take one of those. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those home with you. Either way, it's good with us. And so uh, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Okay, so when I was in college, you know, it, it's, it's kind of amazing when you look back over your life, you see a couple of people that God strategically placed in your life that were really integral to you. And they were really a a person that God used to shape some things and that God used to to really kind of push you in some areas. Now, one of those guys for me was a person named Jay Bratton. And so Jay and I, we came into a fraternity house together. That's kind of where our relationship really started, was in a fraternity house. And uh, so we spent four years, we we roomed together our senior year. So we spent four years together in that fraternity house. And and he is one of those guys looking back that, that I would look at and say, God really used him in some areas of my life to really, really just probably shed some light in some things I had never seen before. And specifically in the area of prayer. Um, Jay was one of those guys that, that for those three or four years that we walked together, the crew of guys around him, we got to see Jay pray for things in such a way that, uh, that we had never seen before. And we got to see God answer prayer for Jay like we had never seen before. Okay, so I'll just give you two just quick stories on this. Uh, Jay got to know a family from India. They were Hindu. And so he would talk the gospel to them, but it was, yeah, Jesus is great, but he's one of many gods. Yeah, I mean, we love Jesus too. I'm glad you love him. We love, everybody loves him. And so Jay started praying that God would do just some supernatural stuff that would, would raise Jesus out of those shadows for them. Okay, now this is what happened. Jay lost contact with him for like three months. And he's trying to call him, no return call, doesn't know what goes on. So he shows up at their house and they say, uh, our phone is broke. We don't know what to do with it. And so we plug it into the wall, it doesn't work. We tried to mess with it, it doesn't work. And Jay looked at him and he said, uh, God's going to heal that phone. Now see, I wouldn't have the courage to pray that right off the bat, right? I'm about to look like a complete idiot when this thing goes down. And so Jay says, God's going to heal that phone. He says, let me have the phone. He takes it, goes out to his car, prays over the phone. He walks it right back in and says, God has healed that phone. They plug it in, and I kid you not, the phone works. I can't explain that stuff. Okay, another thing, the same family, they, they have to get a green card, and they're about to get shipped out of the country. And they've got like a limited time. They call Jay and say, Jay, will you please pray for this? Pray to your God that this will happen. And Jay said, okay, tomorrow that green card's coming. I'm going to pray today that that green card's coming tomorrow in the mail. The next day, the green card comes. I mean, we just got to see just some uncanny stuff kind of revolve around that. It, It was really funny. All of us knew that Jay was a great prayer. And so if we would ever ask anybody to pray publicly with our crew, we would always just default to Jay right? I mean, there's no really need. I mean, I'll gladly do it, but there's no need for me to pray if Jay's here. And so it was really funny. People that didn't know our circle, they didn't know that. And so when they would ask us to pray, there would literally like be this default thing. Like, I'm glad to do it. I I don't mind doing it, but it's going to be really a better benefit for you and everybody else here if you just listen to Jay do it. And so he would kind of be our default prayer. Okay. Now now here was the, the wild thing in that, that I think God really started to push on me with Jay is in Jay, when he would pray, I heard praying like I didn't hear every day. Like he would pray in such a way that there was urgency, there was faith in it. I mean, he, he would pray in such a way that, I mean, I think we could parade a, a group of people up here and say, give it your best shot, go at it, right? And, and we, would, we would bring Jay up and we would say, man, that just sounded so much different. Okay, now when I read Ephesians chapter 3, it brings me back to those moments. Because I'm looking at what Paul prays here. The context is prayer. I'm looking at how and what he prays for. And it reminds me of this thought of, that sounds so abnormal. I don't know those people that pray that way. Okay, now with that, let's look at Ephesians chapter 3 here. Starting in verse 14. I want to try to build a context around this. Because it's going to be different for us. I, I, I just don't think we hear people pray like this very often. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 3, and let me just build a context with three or four statements here, starting in verse 14. Um, Paul says this, that, that for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So let me just point a couple of things out there to, to kind of wrap this into. 
Um, number one, Paul prays in response to the gospel. Okay, so he starts it out for this reason. Okay, now if you've been here over the last few weeks, you know what this, like, for this reason means and what that is linked to. Okay, for this reason in verse 14, would kind of link back to look at chapter 3 verse 1. For this reason, Paul says, I'm a prisoner, which would link back, look at 2.11. Therefore, it links to that therefore, which links to that preceding chapter 2, 1 through 10, where Paul clearly articulates the gospel. And so this, this prayer that we see here is framed in the context of the gospel. And so he's saying that for this reason, because of the gospel, is why I'm praying. And so we try to be really diligent around here to clearly articulate the gospel. So if you flip your bulletin over on the back of your bulletin there on the back of it, you're going to see just a kind of a clear definition of the gospel. That the just and gracious God of the universe looks upon hopelessly sinful people. And, And when he did, we would have killed those people if we were God, but he's not us. And so when he looked upon hopelessly sinful people, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection. So, so here's what these pieces of the gospel do for us here. It shows us book in number one. Book in number one is over here that says we are more sinful than we dare dream. Hopelessly sinful people. We're so sinful that Christ had to die for us. That's how sinful we are. Okay, so that keeps us from pride. Then you've got this book in number two, that we're also more loved than we could ever imagine. That it's not just he had to die for us. Look at this though. It's not just that Jesus had to die for you. He gladly did it because he loves you. Gladly. So there's book in number two, that, that on this side of it, we are more loved than we dared imagine. And so that last little the statement there, so that all who have faith in God will be reconciled to God forever. And faith is not just an, an acknowledgement of these certain facts. Faith is knowing those facts and joyfully submitting all of our life to it. Faith is trusting in and treasuring Jesus. Both of those. It's not just acknowledgement of facts. It's trusting in and treasuring Jesus. Okay, so we try to be really clear. Like if you're new with us this morning, we try to be really clear that this is the way into the kingdom of God. This is the way that you become a Christian is through the gospel. Okay, now if you're new with us and you're a believer in this room, we also try to be very clear on this, that it's not just the way you enter the kingdom of God. It is also how you make all progress as a Christian. The gospel is that. Paul is saying, I am praying in relationship to the gospel. So so here's what that means. Your prayer life is as deep as your gospel understanding is. So so if your gospel understanding is shallow, if all you see the gospel is, is that's how people get saved, then your prayers are going to be really shallow. So he's saying this, that the reason I can cry out to God in prayer, the reason I can do that is because of the gospel. That the reason I can plead in prayer to God is because of the gospel. The gospel motivates that. The gospel pushes me there. The gospel leads me there. Gospel understanding precedes praying. Okay, so he's saying this. First, first right out of the box. For this reason, the gospel is the foundation for what I'm about to tell you. Now, we're about to jump into chapter 4 next week, 4 through 6. And we're going to see this, that the gospel is underneath all right living. The gospel motivates all of that. So he's saying first out of, the, right out of the box. The gospel, this is a response to the gospel, this prayer. Second thing, he goes on to say, for this reason, I bow my knees. So, so you've got Paul praying with humility. So, so he is praying in this posture of bowing. And I don't think that's so much a physical thing that the typical culture at that time would pray standing up. And so I don't think the issue is Paul saying, you need to make sure that you, are, that you are bowing your knees when you pray. I think it's an issue of the heart. He's saying that when you pray, there is a right posture. And it's not an issue of your legs, it's an issue of your life. And, and so he's saying there is a right posture to pray in. There ought to be a reverent humility as we approach God. That because of the gospel, we can boldly but humbly come before and plead our case before God. Because of the gospel, we can boldly but humbly come in and get access into the presence of God. But but he wants you to know that, man, that is a reverent thing. It ought to be with humility that we do that. When we pray, listen to this, it's so easy for us to forget this. When we pray, we are praying to the God that spoke and everything was created, right? I mean, we are praying to the God that when he speaks, things happen. Isaiah says that he plans the, the end from the beginning. 
Okay, so we are speaking to a God that is in control, that is the sovereign. We are speaking to the king when we pray. Okay, so it's a reverent humility. He's praying with humility. Okay, then he goes on to say this, though, and I love this balance. For this reason, I bow my knees before the who? Before the father. Okay, so it's not just a king that we pray to. It's also a father that we pray to. Okay, now, I want to camp on this for just a second here. Daddy's in the room. Do you know why God has given us marriage and fatherhood? You know why he's done that? And for some of you singles in college, maybe teenagers, this is why hopefully God willing that you'll get to step into marriage and fatherhood someday. Here's why he's given us marriage. Marriage is meant, and we'll get to this in Ephesians 5, it's meant to represent the covenant love of God. When you stand before your wife, guys, when you stand before your wife and say, um, in sickness and in health, rich or poor, doesn't matter what happens. When you stand before your wife and say, I'm in, I do to that. That is an example. It's a picture. It's an, a temporal earthly picture of this greater reality. It's a picture of the reality of God's covenant pursuing sickness and in health. Doesn't matter how dirty you are, I'm going to come and get you love. It's a picture of that. Oh, okay, now, now here's the other side of this, fatherhood. You know why God has given you the gift, if you've got it, of fatherhood? It is so you can display to your children the love of a perfect father. That's why. If, if you're a father in this room, it is so you can display that to your kids. That's why he's given it to you. Okay, now we've got a specific bent here. That goes like this. We want to create good, strong, biblical men who love their wives and love their families well. We want to do that. We are very intentional about building men in this place that, that do that that, that. that have this good display of the parental love, this fatherly love. We want to build that here. Okay, so we're going to continually push that. Okay, now let me jump around to the other side of this here. For a lot of us in this room, we didn't have that in a dad. And it's not that we didn't have a perfect dad, because no dad is perfect. That's not the issue here. But it's that we had a bad dad. And we're talking verbally abusive, throwing daggers out of their mouth. Like we're talking um, anger issues exploded any second. We had that dad. And I want to encourage you here, because here's what happens to you if that is your family. You automatically project that picture on God. You can't get around it. And daddies, you see why that's so important? Because you're the picture they're going to project. And so for those of you who had bad pictures to project, I want to encourage you that even though your earthly dad might have not been so good, you have got a good daddy in heaven. You've got that there. Okay, now in, in Matthew 7, I love this picture. God is giving the, this idea of this fatherly aspect of him. And he's saying a good daddy, when a son or daughter asks for fish, doesn't give them a snake. A good dad doesn't do that. A good dad gives them what they need. And so for those of you who have a bad projection right now, just because of temporal circumstances that you've been in, I want to encourage you that you've got a good daddy who's not just king, but he's also a perfect father to you that gives you exactly what you need when you need it. Okay, and last thing here. Look at verse 16. He goes on. He's starting his prayer here, and he says this. That according to the riches of his glory. So it's not just in response of the gospel. It's not just with humility. It's not just praying to a good father. It's also praying to a wealthy father. So, so when we pray, we are not praying to a dad who wishes he could do good for his kids. Who wishes, they could meet, uh, who wishes he could meet their needs. We are praying to a daddy that wants to meet our needs. And that can meet our needs. That's the picture. So, so he's not just a dad, he's also a wealthy king. He, he's not just a dad, he's also an all-powerful ruler that's got all, unlimited resources at his disposal. And this is why in, in Philippians 4.19, Paul can say that your God, he'll meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory. He can meet them all. There's not a single need that you have that God can't meet. Not a single one. 
So, so this is the context. Okay, now he's going to start asking for things now. Now, I want you to notice as he goes through this, the next couple of verses here, notice what, what he does and what he doesn't ask. And this is where this whole Jay Bratton image comes back to me. That he starts praying and it sounds so much different. I mean, it's abnormal praying that you see here. So let's pick this up in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory... Okay, so we've got a wealthy dad that we're praying to here. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. He may give you. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner beings. This would be prayer number one. Paul prays for the people of Ephesus that they would be strengthened. They would be strengthened. Okay, now he quickly clarifies what, what he means by that. And he comes back and says at the end of that verse, last couple of words, in your inner being. So, so Paul's really clear that I'm praying that you would have a strong soul, a healthy soul. Okay, now, now this is how the Bible divides us up. We have got an outer shell and we have got an inner soul. So you've got an outer temporal body. Now for some of us, it's not looking too good, Right? The older you get, the harder it is to maintain. The more stuff starts breaking, more stuff starts sagging, the more stuff just goes downhill, right? Amen, yeah. And everybody over 45 says amen, yeah, okay. So, uh, so you have an outer temporal body and you have an inner soul, eternal soul. Okay, now, now here's my angst for us this morning in this. Is we live in a culture obsessed with the shell. We live in a culture that worships the outer shell. I mean, we live in a culture that literally, I mean, we're going to spend billions of dollars this year making sure the outer shell looks good. I mean, we're going to buy clothes to make sure it's adorned just perfectly. We're going to buy our watches. We're going to get our shoes. We're going to get our jeans. We're going to make sure the right shirts are there. We're going to make sure all of that stuff is in place. The ladies, we're going to buy our makeup. We're going to get our hair. I mean, we're going to spend three hours in front of the mirror. We're going to do all that, right? Now, now, guys, we're not out of that. I mean, don't think we don't look into the mirror too, right? You go to 24-hour fitness tomorrow, and here's what you're going to see. About 300 guys with no necks, and, and every time they do a bench, every time they do a set, what do they do? They get in front of the mirror, and a lot of times they won't, like, let you know. I mean, it's not overly obvious. You watch them, they'll give it a little flex. Have you ever seen that? You, you watch in a, in a weight room... And every guy, after every set, looks in the mirror. Every one of us. And so we've got a culture that worships the outer shell. We are so concerned about our health. I mean, we do the organic food thing. We're importing oranges from, like, Argentina because they don't use fertilizer. I mean, we've got all this stuff going. We're eating plenty of broccoli. We're doing it all. We have a culture obsessed with making sure we look good. I mean, there's not a girl alive that doesn't want to be a runway model, whether or not they are or aren't. Because our culture projects that as beautiful. I mean, can, girls, can I just rescue you from that? The Bible is not overly concerned with it. I mean, there's not a guy alive that doesn't want to be the next Brad Pitt or George Clooney. But guys, can I just tell you, that's not, the measure of a man is not how much you can bench press. I mean, that impresses somebody when you're 13, right? Okay, that's not the measure of a man. Christ's likeness is the measure. And we've got this culture that is so concerned with the outer shell, and we completely de-emphasize the soul. And so we've got good-looking bodies, but while our soul is shrunk and shriveled and dying and faint and feeble. And, pray, and, and Paul prays for these people in Ephesus. And look at his prayer. It's not that they'll have a big bicep. It is that they will be strengthened in their inner being. And listen, I am all for taking care of your body. It's a temple. Okay, so we should take care of it. But I am more concerned about your soul doing well. I'm more concerned about your soul being nourished and growing and fed. I'm much more concerned with that because you're living with that thing forever. You've got a few years with the outer shell and that's it. But you're with you forever. And you can make yourself look really good on the outside and damn yourself on the inside. It's possible to do that. So Paul prays right out of the gate, um, strength in the inner being, in the, in the soul. Okay, now listen, I think we're in this. I think our ch- church culture is swimming in the streams here. 
I mean, we're in the stream of our culture in this thing. And I think you see that by just looking at our prayer life. Like, look at the last 15 things you've prayed for. I'll bet you anything that 90% of those 15 things have to do with physical, temporal issues. Right? I mean, are we swimming with culture here? When Paul says, I'm praying that you would be strengthened. I had a guy call me a week and a half ago, Brian Hannes. Um, he was on staff at the previous church with me. He moves down to, uh, to San Antonio to work on a staff there. And when he does his life insurance, kind of re-upping, they do a blood test. And they figure out that, that he's got hepatitis C. I mean, he has got a serious issue going on. When he was 18, he had his hand ripped off in a water skiing accident. They glued that back on in the midst of those transfusions. He gets hepatitis C from that. He goes through years of chemotherapy. Four years later, about th- four weeks ago to th- uh, this week, um, the doctor finally came in and said, you're cured. It's a miracle. You're cured. Two weeks after that, um, his wife, they, they kind of having some, some problems with her stomach. They go to the doctor. They think it's going to be like an ulcer or something like that. Um, they find out she's got colon cancer. Advanced, already in her lymph nodes, the whole deal. He calls me. And here's how that conversation goes. How you doing? Not very well. Not very well. And, and here's what he said. I am clinging to my rock, my anchor. And then I'm praying for Debbie to be healed. That order. That order. And I think so many of us pray for Physical heat, and we should, at the expense of a strong soul. Because cancer cannot kill your soul. It can kill your outer shell in a heartbeat, but it cannot kill your soul. Can't do it. And so wouldn't we be wise to pray for what it can't kill? Because here, here's the truth for us. In the midst of moments like that, breathtaking moments, our soul is in danger. And our soul needs great strength. Because in the midst of situations like that, Satan rattles his little weak but loud saber. He, he rattles it. And, and this is where for all of us, when, we're, when we face that, for all of us, we're in the battle of our life. And that battle is for faith. I mean, this is where the swords clash. And we need to be, we need to be praying for people who walk through that, that God would give them great strength. That he would strengthen their soul. That they would be this anchor that they could cling to. Amen? I mean, right? I mean, we need to be praying for that for people. Okay, and then he makes this statement. I'm praying that you'd be strengthened in your inner being. And how does that come about? It's through or by the Spirit. Because here's the thing. I can't strengthen Brian Hannes. You can't either. And you know what? He can't either. That is a God-wrought thing. And that's why we've got to be diligent to pray for that. That we would be strengthened in our inner being. That our soul would be strong. That our faith would endure. So, so let me ask you this question. How many of you need that this morning? For you to say, man, I need my inner being. I need strength. How about this one? Strength to fight temptation. Strength to fight pornography, immorality. Strength to fight against anger. Strength to deal with cancer and sickness and death and loss. I mean, how many of us need that sort of strength? To be the good daddy, to be the good husband, to be the good wife, to be the good mom. How many of us need that sort of, I I do. I need that sort of strength. Okay, he goes on. Thing number two, look at verse 17. He, He prays that they would be strengthened in the inner being, then verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So, so he's praying for Christ to dwell in them. For Christ to dwell. Okay, now let me make sense of this. So I think this could be a little bit confusing because there's a, a problem on the surface. When you become a Christian, um, Ephesians 2, 22 is going to say that you're being built. At that point, you're being built into a dwelling place for God. So when you become a Christian, when, when God saves you, he automatically inhabits you. Okay, that's what happens when you become a believer. When, when you place your faith in God, God moves in. He inhabits. Okay, now there's two Greek words that could get that idea across of inhabiting or dwelling. Okay, there's two of them. And one of them is a little bit of a weaker word that would kind of be the idea of inhabit. So, so you would go in and, and you, would, you would be in the house, like you're in. 
Okay, so that's a weaker word for a habit. And then there's also a Greek word that communicates a stronger issue. It communicates this idea of dwell or set up residence. It's the difference in living in a place and it being a house and living in a place and it being a home. Y'all know the difference in that? Laura and I, we bought a home, uh, this has been like six years ago now. When we bought that thing, I'm telling you, it was a wild deal. You looked at it from the front of the house, and it looked like a jungle. We had trees in our flower bed. I mean, they used to be shrubs, but they're now trees. These things are like 47 feet tall. I mean, it's great. You couldn't even see the house. You walk in, and it gets worse. We had the, the flowery pastel wallpaper in the kitchen. You know what I'm saying? Like straight out of the 80s? That was us. Okay, the carpet. It gets I mean, the carpet is nasty. In, in about 13, 14 years, same carpet in that house. Nasty carpet. They had animals in there. You get the picture. Okay, so you got that going on. The tile was straight out of the 80s. I mean, it was like this off-colored brown looking. I mean, it was bad stuff. So we move in. and It's our house. We're in the house. So it's not an issue of whether we own the house, whether or not we're in. We're in the house, but here's the problem. That house was not a home yet. So, so what do we do? We rip the 19-foot tall tree out of the, the, out of the flower bed. I mean, now you can see the house. It looks a little bit more like us now. Okay, so we rip the floral wallpaper down. No, no more, right? If you've got some of that stuff, rip it down with us, right? Okay, so, so, so we ripped that stuff down. We, we re-carpeted. We had to re-tile. We, we had to make, we had to shift some things out, move some things out, and then bring other things in. And this is the idea he's getting at, for Christ to dwell in your heart. Not just that he would be in the house, but that he would make your heart his home. That he would be settled in you. That, that, that you would start to look like him. That, that your house would start to have the taste and, and kind of follow the suit of the master. And, and so the old couch is now out and Christ brings his in. Pornography and immorality and, and impurity, that's out and he brings purity in. Anger and, and bitterness and unforgiveness is out and he brings peace in. Greed is out, he brings contentment in. I mean, see the pit. So, so we're... So we're settling in the house. Okay, and then I think it's even maybe a little bit bigger than that, though. It's not just settling in the house. It's Christ reigning supreme in the house. That he would be supreme. Listen, you can be a resident and not rule. You, you can be somewhat settled and not be supreme. And so the issue is not just that, that Christ is in us, but that he is supremely in us. Okay, maybe picture this, this imagery of a wedding. And, and picture, we'll just call him Guy. Guy is going to marry girl. And so Guy, he started out way in the get-go. I mean, he is, he is pursuing, he is courting, he is running after this girl. I mean, he's got the love letters going. Y'all remember those days, guys? Right? Remember those? Okay, he's got the flowers going. Y'all remember those days? Right? Okay, he's got all this stuff moving. He is running, at, he bribes her, he begs her, he finally gets her to agree. He slides the ring on, says, I do. They run off to their honeymoon and they get to the bedroom. Guy flips on Brian Adams. If, you, if you're 45 or over, maybe Barry White, something like that. Okay, so, so he flips on the Brian Adams and you've got, yeah, you know what he's singing, right? He looks into her eyes and it is everything I do, baby. You know, it is, I'm doing this for you, right? So, so he is singing the song and all of a sudden, Girl two and girl three bust in the room. So some old sweethearts bust in. One at his right side, one at the left. And, and all of a sudden, Brian Adams, it gets back to the chorus. And all of a sudden, now, now he is singing again. He's looking at girl one saying, baby, everything I do, I do it for you. But I've got the, I mean, do you see the problem here? And is this not us? Is this not us? I mean, we are singing sweet songs to Jesus when we've got idols in each hand. And God is saying, listen, that is offensive to me. I am your groom. I have, met, I have tracked you down, hunted you down, pursued you, wooed you in, and I have married you. Not so you can have idols, but so you can have me. It's an issue of Christ settling and then supremely reigning in us. For Christ to dwell in us. I mean, do, do, do some of us need that. 
I mean, do some of us need for us to be prayed for that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that he would settle us, that he would ship some things out and send some things in, that he would supremely rule, that all idols would be let go of. I mean, I think we need that prayer, don't we? Okay, he goes on, thing number three. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength, may have strength. So this is one of the things that a strengthening will do for you right here. So that you may have strength, and it takes strength to do this, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Prayer number three. For you to know the unknowable love of God. For you to know the unknowable love of God. Kind of sounds like a paradox. So he, he prays for you to comprehend what you can never comprehend. For you to know what you can never really know. And, and so, so he's praying that, that we would have eyes to see and a heart that would comprehend the love of God. The objective truth of the love of God. And here's how he describes it. He describes it as a limitless love. I mean, look, look at the adjectives he uses there. I mean, look at them there in verse, uh, eight, uh, verse 18. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And, and what he's getting at there is that it's a limitless love. That there are no dimensions on the love of Christ. Like there is no tape measure that you can roll out and kind of get this thing measured by. It's impossible to do that. He is saying that the love of Christ is beyond anything you can measure. Whatever you think of as high, it is high. Whatever you think of as wide, it's wider. Whatever you think of as deep, it's deeper. It is beyond the ability to, to measure. It is limitless. I mean, and this is where you get to see these glimpses of this, the unknowable love of God. Like in Romans 5, our scripture memory for this month, um, Paul's going to say that, um, you know, scarcely would a man die for, for a righteous person. So if you're a good guy, man, it, it's going to be hard for anybody to die for you, even though you're good. I mean, I can agree with that, right? I mean, if people make war on us, we want to kill them, right? And if, even if they're good, uh, we're not sure we want to die for them. But here's, here's what God says to finish that up in verse 8. He, Paul says, but, but God has shown, he has demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, rebellious, finger up in the air to God, enjoying every moment of it. While we were rebellious, Christ crawled on the cross and was crucified for us. The limitless love. Like it's beyond our, like human kind of, we, we don't see that sort of love. Okay, now, now here is the, the implication of that. Because it's limitless, his love is also satisfying. Because it's limitless, because it's beyond limits, it's got no dimensions, it is bigger than the word big, higher than the word high, because of that, it alone satisfies us. Okay, everything you touch, feel, bump into on this planet, everything is subject to the law of diminishing returns. Y'all know what I'm saying? The law of diminishing returns. Guys, let's take it back to the moment you first held hands with your bride. Remember that day? I don't know how you did it. I don't know if you went for that whole, I don't know what you did. But, but when you grab that hand, it's like you just stuck your hand into a, a light socket, right? I mean, you just got 120 volts that just happened right there. Y'all remember that day? Now, what happened time number two? It, it drops from 120, but it's still, it's still an outlet. I mean, it's still at 115, right? Now, what happens at time 100? I, you're poking it, trying to figure out where, where'd the electricity go? I mean, what happened to this thing, right? That's the law of diminishing return. And listen, every marriage is like that. And this is why if you don't fight to be affectionate with your wife or your husband, you'll be like 99.99999% of marriages and feel nothing for them. So you better fight for that. You better fight to stay tender. Because everything is subject to the law of diminishing returns. This is why a guy in the middle of a marriage says, you know what, the grass has got to be greener over there. And they get over to this girl and they find out the same thing. It was 120 volts for about the first four times. And this is why we move from job to job. This is why we think that uh, man, if we can just get that paycheck, surely that will do it. If we can just get that house, surely that house will do it. That car, surely, this new gadget, then surely... We 
It's the law of diminishing return. Everything we bump into leaves us unsatisfied. Just give it a few months. Everything. Everything but the limitless love of Jesus Christ. Because it's limitless, it will, it's got no shelf life. It's got no diminishing returns. I mean, if you pictured um, maybe the love of Christ like an ocean, a bottomless ocean. I mean, that's the picture. And the, the deeper you go down into it, the more electrifying the love of God becomes. And here is the epidemic in the church today. Is that we've got people snorkeling on the surface thinking that they've seen it all. I mean, we've got people with the snorkel on thinking that they can see the bottom of it. I mean, maybe we need to take the snorkel off, get the scuba gear on, and dive. And as God breathes life into our lungs and we get the ability to to hold our breath for longer and we go down, we see more and more of the beauty, the perfection, the greatness, the limitless love of God. But that doesn't happen when we stay on the surface. I mean, if, if all we're doing is walking in and out of a church on Sunday morning thinking this is going to be the deal, you are going to be unsatisfied. You are snorkeling on top. But when you start to dig down and you start to move into, it's the one thing that is not subject to the law of diminishing returns. The one thing. It'll take eternity to grab all of that. So he's praying that you would comprehend that, that it's limitless, that it alone satisfies, that we've got, to, we've got to dive deep into it. He's praying that we would comprehend that. But it's not just comprehending it. Okay, look what he prays down below that. So he prays that you would comprehend that the breadth, the, the, the width, the, the length, the height, the, you'd comprehend that. And then he prays that you would know that love. That with all the saints, you would know that. Okay, now wouldn't we agree that there's a massive difference between comprehending something and then experiencing something? I mean, he's praying that you would experience this love. If I were to come to you and say, hey, skydiving, here's the manual. You strap into a parachute, a little backpack, you jump onto a plane, the plane takes you up a few thousand feet, and you jump out. It's that simple. Go for it. Okay, I can comprehend that, right? Like, I get that. Just parachute, plane, jump out, we're skydiving. But until you strap the parachute on, jump in the plane, look down and realize that parachute is the only thing separating you from death, and you jump out, then you haven't, you have no idea what, what Scott, you get the picture? So, so we can say it's limitless, we can say that it satisfies, but until you dive into it, and you swim deep in it, you'll think snorkeling's all it is. So do you need for God to be gracious to you and, and help you dive deep into that? For, for him to, to peel back the scales so that we can see that limitless love that satisfies forever? Man, I need that. And not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next year. We all need that. We all need to see that. And believe that and experience that. Last thing. Verse 19. That you may be filled with, you'll pick it up there at the end. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So that you would comprehend it, you would know this. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Prayer number four. For you to be filled with God. Now that sounds like a bold thing to pray, doesn't it? You'd be filled with God. Start to take that shape of God. I, and so I, I think there needs to be a little bit of work here in what exactly that means. Um, Colossians 2.9 I think helps. It says that, that Jesus was filled, like his body was filled with the fullness of God. And so here's what I think it's saying there. That when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. Now for, for Jesus, it is God. He perfectly represented God because he was God. So, so he is filled with the fullness of God. When you look at the way he loves people, when you look at the way he speaks to people, prays for people, when you look at the way he confronts people, when you look at the way he, uh, everything he does, the way he suffers, the, the, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see God. And that's what it means for to be filled with the fullness of God. It doesn't mean that you bark like a dog or flop like, I mean, it means that you are filled with him, that you are becoming Christ-like. That's what it is. It's a prayer that you would be Christ-like. 
It's a prayer that you would be filled with God. I heard one pastor kind of summarize the meaning of it this way. It's a prayer that God would so fill and dominate our thoughts, attention, affections, desires, and decisions that our lives begin to take his shape. That we would be so full of God that it would dominate affections, decisions, desires, everything we do. It would dominate and fill all of those things so that we would take the shape of God, so that we would be Christ-like. If you want to know what it means to be filled with the fullness of God, it means that you are walking obediently and joyfully after God. That's what it means. And listen, it's not just a prayer for for Christ-likeness. Underneath that, that is a painful prayer. Painful. Who in here loves the verse that said John 3.30? He must increase and I must decrease. Everything in me rebels against that. Everything. And until God gives us great grace to love that, we'll always revolt against that. For him to increase and us to decrease, the lingerings of our flesh hate those sort of words. I mean, that's a painful process, isn't it? For parts of you to be drug out and executed. Isn't that painful? For, for those massive parts of your life to, to be drug out and thrown on the altar and crucified? That's a painful deal. But he, here's maybe the second part of that. It's not only painful. It, it is the pathway to joy. It's the pathway to a joyful life. I, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is Deuteronomy 10 where God gives these commands. And in verse 12, after he gives these commands, do this, don't do that. Live this way, don't live that way. He comes back and says this. You know why I'm giving you those? For your good. For your good. To walk you out of existing and into life. To be a good daddy who wants your best. I'm giving you those commands for your good. This is what being filled with the fullness of God does. It leads us to life. When we walk in Christ's likeness, it leads us to the greatest possible joy in life. Greatest possible. And, and let me make this final thing and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Do you know how people around you walk into the fullness of God, walk into life? It's by people who are living before them in life. That's how. I mean, you want to be a light in your neighborhood? Then walk in the fullness of God. Live in the fullness of God. Live Christ-like. Live life well. I mean, this is how it happens. I'll never forget this moment when a guy named Darren Ely. He was a guy that when I was in seminary, he invested into me a little bit. I'll never forget this conversation. Um, Darren is a guy that that lived well for Jesus. He walked in the fullness of God. He was alive for God. And he he made this comment to me. We're sitting across the table. He looks at me. And he's kind of just got that crazy eye look. You, You ever know that guy's got the crazy eye look? He's got that look. And he looks at me and he says, Rodney, do you want to die sucking applesauce out of a straw at a nursing home? I'm like, no, I don't want that. What's option B? He says, do you want to die sucking applesauce out of a straw at a nursing home? Or do you want to die on the front lines, living well, getting the gospel out? Filled with the fullness of God. I'll take that. I'll take that. We'll answer this question and be done. How do we make this happen? Here's the truth. You can't. You don't. That's why Paul's praying. You can't. You can position yourself We can position ourselves in the word. If you're not in the word, chances are you are not filled with the fullness of Christ. Chances are you are not strengthened by Christ. Chances are you have not comprehended and know the love of Christ. Chances are none of those things are happening unless you are positioned in the word. The word, it forges, it leads the way for the spirit of God. That's what the word does. Where the word goes, the spirit of God follows. So if you want the spirit of God to do these things, position yourself in the word. We can position ourselves by reflecting on the gospel. Memorize passages that deal with the gospel. Think about the gospel. It's not just how we get in. It is how we make all progress in. And then we position ourselves by praying, by pleading with God. And we'll just read these last two verses to finish. Verse 20. 
verse 20. We plead for great grace from God to do these things in us. Now to him. And look, I mean, these are some of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. Now to him, to God, who is able to do. Religion is all about you doing. The gospel is all about what Christ has done. Now to him who is able to do far more. I mean, so it's not just God doing, it is God doing far more. Okay, now he goes on. Far more abundantly. I mean, he's like throwing adjective on top of adjective here, right? And so it's like, a, in grammar, this doesn't work. It's like saying the most of the most or more than, it doesn't work grammatically, but theologically it does. He is saying that whatever you think of as this is what God can do, he does far more, far more abundantly above that. Okay, and then he goes on. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask. You know why I think we see so little from God sometimes? Because we ask so little. Because we ask so little. Do you think Paul would have even dreamed that 2,000 years later, people, they didn't even know this place existed, right? The people in a land they didn't even know existed would be opening up that letter and reading that prayer. Far more abundantly than all we can even dream of to ask. May we be the sort of people who ask bold things from God. Amen? Look, it goes on to say, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. May we dream massively big thoughts. May we put God to the test here. I mean, this is an area where God, I think, would say, Test me. Dream big. Ask big. And let's just see what happens. Let's see if I do bigger than you can ask or dream of. That you could ask, that you can even think to ask of. Let's just see. May we be people who put God in the test in our families, in our church, that we are dreaming that big, that we are asking that big for God to do those sorts of things. And then he goes on to say, according to the power at work within us, verse 21, to him be the glory in the church. And that's why we can ask for massive things in the church because the church is about the glory of God. It lines up with what God is doing in the world. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why don't you pray with me? So let me ask you the question. Do you need to be strengthened? I'm talking your soul. To fight temptation. To believe the promises of God. To live as a good daddy. As a good mama. You need to be strengthened for that. You need to be strengthened for purity. For holiness. Do you need to be strengthened to be a great display in your neighborhood of the great God that you serve? And some of you are in the midst of, of some really difficult days, wayward children. You need to be strengthened in the middle of that. Wayward friends. Wayward moms and dads. You need to be strengthened in the midst of, of just suffering. Maybe it's coming in the form of a sickness. That God would, would root you. You would be rooted and grounded in him. He would be this anchor for you. Would you be strengthened in that way? How about for Christ to dwell in your hearts? That he would not just settle in your heart, but that he would supremely reign. Do you need the spirit of God to pry your hands open? To let go of idols? And to grab him. That's a spirit rot thing. You need the spirit of God to do that. Do you need the spirit of God to, 
to wipe the scales away so you can know the unknowable love of God. And you need the Spirit of God to do that for you. I mean, for you to be able to see and comprehend that that's limitless. That that is the thing that will satisfy us. You need the Spirit of God to breathe some, some life into your lungs so that you can dive down and not just stay on the surface of that. But for you to dive into it and see the electrifying depths of the love of God. Do you, need the, do you need the Spirit of God to fill you with the fullness of God so that you would take the shape of God? So that your affections, your thoughts, your desires, your decisions would be Christ-like? So that your life would look like Christ, that so you would take the shape of Christ. And that's painful. I mean, you need the Spirit of God to walk you through that. I do. And you can pray that for me. I need that. I mean, there's a thousand different things that we could pray in this room. A thousand of them. But, but I don't know if we could pray for more applicable things than these. More weighty things than these. And so as Kevin finishes today, we're, we're going to sing a song. And we're just going to kind of clear this out up front. If you want to pray with families, you can do that. We just want to give some time, maybe for daddies to pray some of these things. Ephesians 3. 14 through 21, over families, over your wife, over your kids. We just want to give some space for that to happen. I mean, maybe you just need to come up and pray that over yourself. Plead with the grace of God, the great grace of God, the good daddy. Plead for him to give you great grace to see these things, to know these things, to walk in these things. So God, we, we pray that. God, I beg for you to do that. God, will you move move in this place? God, will you send your Holy Spirit to do these things in us? God, we are spirit-dependent people. And we need you for these things. God, I pray for the man in here who, who his body looks fine, but his soul is shrunk. It is shriveled. It is faint. It's feeble. God, I pray for strength for that man. Strength for that woman. God, help us in that. In your good name we pray.